Hello and welcome back to the Comic Lyra podcast, the podcast that does deep dives into the best of comic books, graphic novels, mangas, and whatever this one is. I'm your host, soon to be known as Comic Stan, and with me as always is my creative co-host, it's Jamie. I like that one, because that's actually true. <laughs> and, and it's a tie into the thing we're doing this it's week. It's incredibly fitting, isn't it? And you know what? I actually completely forgot to look one up, and then it was literally about a minute before we started recording, I was like, I haven't got a word. I just pulled that one out of my ass. Well, you did a great job. I love the improv. I think it's strong. It's what I've always wanted from this podcast, man. Jazz, you and know? You could say that was quite creative of me to, co- <laughs> to come up with the word creative. Hello and welcome to the Comic Glitter <laughs> podcast with my creative roast. Roast? <laughs> That's creative very creative. Roast. A creative roast what if is... Your co-host, what if your podcast co-host was a roast dinner? Well, I was going to say, a creative roast is what I ate for five years as a vegetarian. Because you'd get everything else on a roast dinner and they'd be like, and a goat cheese pastry plat, and you're like, okay, fair enough. Whereas my version of a creative roast is saying it's impossible to underestimate you. Oh, <laughs> that's not creative. That's a well-worn groove, baby. It is creative. I didn't create it. That's the difference. It is in itself a very creative roast. What a way to start. I know. Well, I mean, we're talking about something deeply avant-garde today. Yeah, this is one of those... uh, People might have heard the expression from creatives in the industry, like actors, directors, musicians, whatever, of the one for them, one for me kind of philosophy, which basically means for anyone who doesn't know it, you do the the Marvel movie or the action film or the, the raunchy comedy, whatever it is, that's for the studio to make money. And then you go back to it, you go, I've actually got this like passion project. <laughs> it's not going to make much money, but I want to do it. And if and I, you guys owe me one. So make help me make, I'm trying to think of like a passion project that didn't do well. Um, um... Robert Downey Jr. and The Judge. That was a TV show. Yeah. And that was just after like he killed off the from the Avengers. So he was like, oh, I, I don't know. If I, oh, no, no. Um, He was Dr. Doolittle. That's the one. Yeah. Because he was like, and I think they were like, we're going to start a franchise for this. No, you're not. <laughs> film, I didn't even know that happened. The film ends with him pulling bagpipes out of a dragon's ass. <laughs> Does it actually? Yes. <laughs> Sorry to spoil that film, anyone, but also oh. apparently, I didn't even see it. Apparently, it's just a really bad film. So I know what I'm doing when we finish. <laughs> <laughs> just skipping right to the end of, of the Doctor Doolittle film. And the problem is now, the best one, Doctor Doolittle film, is still the Eddie Murphy one. Because it's great. It's a great family film. Yeah, it's brilliant. And this one, uh, Robert Downey Jr. was like, I should do an accent for this one. I think the studio were like, fine, I guess. He was like, I'm going to do Welsh. They were like, why Welsh? <laughs> why would you choose that one? Like, Robert Downey Jr.'s probably never been to Wales. Like, I, I, I can't say. If, he, must, he must have had something Welsh to inspire him. Have I told you about my really fun story about a time that I was trying to book a hotel in Wales? Uh, I don't think so. So my friend and I were booking a hotel because I had like a wedding or something. And we were on the phone because this little boarding house we found wasn't on the internet. Like it was, uh, their, their phone number was on the internet, but you couldn't book on the internet. But it was the right price and it looked clean. So I called up and we were, I was in the process of booking a room. And then this poor rural Welsh bloke down the phone had to go, who men is it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. But you know, And I said, yeah, it was. Like, we are two men, in fact. And he was like... Who beds is it? And I very nearly went, ah, just one. <laughs> I would have said, well, two for now, but we'll see. <laughs> see if the other one gets used. But it became a running joke at the wedding I was at. And so 
you know, anytime anything happened, somebody would be like, two pints, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and that was just a fun little thing that happened in Wales. That's a, that's a good accent-based punchline to an anecdote. I've, I've got one, which I have told you before, but I'll tell the listeners if I haven't told them already. Uh, I've done a bit of, I do and have done a bit of voiceover work yes. in, in, as a side hustle thing. Mostly on Fiverr and stuff. And so if you'd like to hire Ryan <laughs> on Fiverr, I will say almost anything. Well, based on what you showed me last week when we were recording, you will literally say anything. It's, it was some interesting <laughs> stuff, but for personal use, apparently. <laughs> Which makes it worse. Also, to clarify, it's not that kind of work. <laughs> it's not that kind of audio work. Just imagine in your head, Ryan reading out excerpts of Fifty Shades of Grey. And he put it in my wetness. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, but so I did a, to start off with that, I did a, what's what called a workshop with yes. a professional voiceover, a couple of people, and they kind of take you through some stuff and you do some readings. And that was how you, a lot of people get started these days. So uh, this guy, professional voiceover, as he was talking about back in the day, it was talking about accents. And the main thing was, it was... Um, it's basically saying whatever accent you have, that's what you do voiceover. Yeah. Unless you have mastered another accent, don't bother doing anything else. The main reason being, there's so many people doing voiceover that when people want an accent, yeah. they just get someone who is natively that accent. Yeah. He said back in his day, so he was a bit older, he said back in like the 70s and 80s, when he was like a young up and coming voiceover artist, there was like 10 of them in the entire country. <laughs> so they had to do everything. And right? they were all white men. <laughs> So if there was an accent that need doing, you just said yes, and then you learned it after committing, <laughs> hoping that you would have it ready on the day. Yeah, yeah. This one, his agent said to him, oh, they need a northern accent. And this was a very London, not Cockney, but very proper spoken, non-regional like accent. Received pronunciation. Yes. Kind of like me. But he was like, yeah, I can do northern. <laughs> and he got to the, 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 he got to the day, and they were like, all right, when you're ready. And he starts reading this script in a, what he described as a really bad northern accent. And it got to the point where the people in the booth kind of stopped him and went, hey, uh, just question, are you actually northern? And he went, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's my, it's not my own anecdote, but I've stolen it. No. <laughs> so, so today we are talking about something, I mean, it's one for us and it's something that I wanted to do. I would say all the superhero ones are one are ones for me. So this is more one for you, but I yeah. still find it very interesting. It's called What It Is, and it's what, by... Where is it called? What It Is. What is it? Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's a central rumination of the text, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm being clever, apparently. <laughs> you think, yeah, yeah, all right. All right. <laughs> I've decided. <laughs> Do you know, as I go quiet when I'm feeling sarcastic, I'm like, all right, yeah, fine. I, I, I tend to get louder. When like, <laughs> can you hear the sarcasm in my voice? That kind of thing. <laughs> can you hear the sarcasm? Yes. So it's by Linda Barry. Mm. Um, this is an Eisner Award winner, Ryan. I found that out. I went on the Wikipedia and I was uh, surprised. But and I was surprised just because when you don't know somebody's going to be an Eisner Award winner specifically, and you go, oh, cool. And that's big in our world. That that's, is that's really important. The Oscars of the comics. Absolutely. So it won the 2009 Eisner for the best reality-based work. Which feels to me kind of like the Oscar for documentary. Like I think that's yeah. like an equal kind of comparison. 100%. Yeah. Um, and you know what? Every year I win the Oscar winner, I watch the Oscar winning documentary really wow yeah, not me i the... i try to win the i try to watch the award-winning like director or best picture those kind of ones sometimes best screenplay i'll tend to watch yeah i'll tend i'll tend to also have a stab at best director mm. um 
sometimes if best soundtrack looks really good because sort of a great soundtrack can make a film yeah but i suppose you want it to be interesting as well because you don't want to kind of wait for the parts where it's like was it there's no sound and you kind of like any minute now back to back to the soundtrack come on yeah that for you would be maybe like a guidance of the galaxy <laughs> like how great the soundtrack was for that we I were feel... talking about gardens of the galaxy the other day weren't we, were, we? we had a rare off podcast conversation yeah and, and there was a point when we we'd been like 15 20 minutes into talking about gardens of the galaxy with one of our friends i kind of thought to myself fuck we probably should have got some microphones out for this, <laughs> this what is quite a waste good of a conversation that we didn't record it and monetize it i think that's one of the key problems of being a podcaster yeah, yeah. Particularly a two guys podcast where we're actually friends in real life. Because mm. sometimes we will have conversations and one of us will go, we save this. <laughs> <laughs> Should we try and reenact it on the podcast <laughs> exactly. and try, try and sound naturalistic while doing it? But I suppose that's just part of the process, isn't it? Um, so Linda Barry is a really interesting creative. Um, she started writing comics in what seems to be like the 90s, I suppose. Um, she went to university in the 70s. She won an Eisner Award for this, but she's written a few actual narrative stories. Um, one of them kind of semi-autobiographical. She's currently a university professor uh, in Wisconsin. Um, she teaches, and this made me chuckle because it's like a very postmodern, like post-Y2K degree course. Mm. Um, she teaches interdisciplinary cre- creativity. That does ring true for the text that we're about to talk about. Well, doesn't it just? Mm. Um, and so... The best way that I can describe what it is in like a catchy, soundbitey way, and you might disagree, Mm. is an avant-garde exploration of creativity in the creative process. That might have to be the episode title, potentially. Like something to kind of... (laughs) Do you think? Well, this is going to be an episode title that doesn't feature like Spider-Man or Batman or uh, whatever else has done well. What What if the title is just batman and then we launch in and it's something i don't think we different. want angry batman fans who who ryan <laughs> i only want angry batman fans to listen to this episode if you're not an angry bat if we if we didn't do that and we titled this episode in a more responsible fashion if you're not an angry batman fan then go back and listen to the kamala khan episode again i don't know look like, i'm all i'm all for pissing <laughs> off comic book fans as you know <laughs> That's literally our brand, Ryan. But all I'm saying is, if that's what the the intention of an episode is, I would not have put as much effort into reading this as I would for something, say, where we just are taking the piss out of Batman fans, yeah? Yeah, because, I mean... I, I like this was this wasn't the kind of read where you could have the TV or music on in the background, was it? No, this was a a dense read. I would yeah, say, yeah, it was thick and chewy. What a way to describe <laughs> a comic! <laughs> Can we call it a comic? I mean, uh, if- I mean, no. No, I mean she is a comic artist and she's mm. a cartoonist, and you can see that work in in this work. Yeah, I think because there's there's two or three distinct art styles at play here, isn't there? Mm. And so there's one that is a very kind of late 20th century art, like a a composite art style. You mean the collaging? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot of collage work, isn't there? And there's these more explorative collage pieces, which are exploring the wider questions that one of our art teachers used to ask her, Mm. which I think is a really fascinating way of framing it. And then there's this more grounded narrative of her life and her the evolution of her creative process from childhood, which is in a very kind of classic cartoonist style, isn't it? Yes, and very uh, 
very representative of the age she was at, of the time she's talking about. Yeah, and it evolves, doesn't it? Yeah. Her car, like she shows a real evolution of her cartooning style, which I think is really fascinating because um, she manages to make the drawings of herself when she was younger look childlike without being bad. Mm. And then it evolves into this incredibly mature cartoonist style. Yeah. And because she's obviously a, clearly an excellent cartoonist. Yeah, like that, that's evident. Yeah, it's, it's evident in the way that this thing is drawn and the whole conception of it. I'm going to provide just a slightly more, well, I think, more layman's like, yeah, explanation it, of what it. this is. So it's this woman, Linda Barry, it's basically a somewhat autobiographical, but also a exercise in creative thinking and writing. And it kind of melds the two a bit together. So it kind of shows her own journey through learning how to draw, especially, and then write. And then it gives you basically the exercises that i would assume i don't know if it, i missed it or not but i assume these ones she uses herself for creative writing exercises so it kind of goes through her autobiographical story and then these exercises towards the end yeah which are beautifully presented in this like really dense collage style that slow the pace down don't they because mm. you, you're reading this quite linear nar- narrative about her as a child and her in school and her in college and her post-college becoming an artist. And then suddenly you're presented with this collage with little bits of text kind of peppered around it. And you're reading around the page and up and down it and everything's presented in this non-linear way. And suddenly you have to take a minute to stop and it's asking these huge questions, isn't it? Mm. Like, what is an image? Should an image have movement? How does an image move? How do your memories work? And so she's asking you these huge questions that I think would be really interesting ways into creative writing. So as someone who's not done creative writing, like yeah. at all, a short of writing some stand-up bits, um, I I had an issue with some of those grander ideas and their kind of execution. Um, I actually have my opinion of this whole book it was kind of a roller coaster like yeah. it literally went up and down as i went on and it's because there are kind of sections to this book like yeah. there are sections where she's doing different things or trying to achieve different things so at, like at one point and I, this sounds negative from the start I'm, i think i'm gonna level out in terms of my opinion of it towards when i've finished speaking about it but there was one point where i thought this is bad Right, and, okay. uh, and there's a very specific reason. I kind of went back and retroactively worked out this is why I felt the way I did about this section. So why did you feel that way? So I kind of need to go, like, you know me, I make my notes, like, through, when we're reading a more traditional comic, I make my notes as we go through the story. So you do so very chronologically, don't you? Yes, so they're kind of in that way. Mm. So towards the start, I thought it's very interesting looking, the collage effect and style is very interesting, and I'm, I'm drawn in because I'm like, this is not like any comic I've read before, so what is all this near the start there's a comic book a comic book panel where it's her talking to her husband and it's kind of just a short little comic about um like regret and anxiety over past actions mm. and it's really good it's just like a very short small thing and it's basically her husband be like what's wrong and she kind of has to say like nothing and also all all these things <laughs> everything and I, and that i thought was quite a succinct take on like nothing specifically is wrong but i'm in a mood where i'm all these little things i i'm digging up from my past and i'm yeah having anxiety about think cringing over things she said as a nine-year-old like that yeah. kind of stuff so initially i'm like this is great. I, I immediately relate to what this is. I'm feeling it. Like I, I'm, I, 
it's insightful like i'm, I'm excited for it mm. then after that we get a lot of the collage style pages yes with it's every once in a while there's a page about a, a kind of more autobiographical page so there's specifically yellow pages which like yellow lined pages which i think we later learn is the paper she actually drawn as a child or it's meant yeah. she's this is paper she's stealing from her mum to draw on because she feels guilty about exercising any kind of creative and this is where the narrative comes in yes and the most i mean for the first maybe two-thirds of this comic book that's what the narrative sections look like isn't it exactly so the narrative sections i'm enjoying yeah but as when we get so the first panel i mentioned the one about uh, regret and anxiety we get a lot of these collage pages i grew to really hate the collage pages so at the start, I was like, this is nothing I've seen before. It's drawing me in. I've, this is interesting. Eventually, I started to look at the collage pages as, and this, this might be my limited um, experience as a reader or whatever, but I felt like it was faux psychological, at worst, like fortune cookie-esque lines and musings. Like, yeah. I, like I made a note of one where... And when you, you, so you said about like the good ones, like what is an image and things just to get the creative juices, you know, flowing. And I thought, okay, fair enough. Like that's an explanation for those kind of ones. But then I made a note of one as an example of one line was just, is a dream autobiography or fiction? And that to me just came off as like, again, like faux intellectual, like, like, or faux philosophical. Like it sounds interesting, but when you actually break it down, I don't think it means anything. And there were quite a few lines in the collage of that. And when I'm trying to scan the collage, and I'm tr- initially I'm reading it like a comic book, a traditional comic book. I'm trying to take everything in, yeah. And then I'm like, I'm putting all this attention into reading this mess of pages, which aesthetically looks really nice. Mm. Every page looks nice. I could take any page and like put it up on a wall and be like, look at that. But when I'm trying to read through pages of them, and I'm trying to read lines like that in every which way and every different font and style and everything. Um, eventually i'm just getting aggravated with it and i'm like what is this bollocks well i think that's part of the way you're supposed to feel i mean fair if that's the intention then fair enough it's disruptive and, yeah and that is the and one so she, she's establishing this narrative and then she's disrupting it yeah and and so you're meant to feel that disruption and i think part of what is frustrating about it is that a question isn't particularly in uh, questions aren't inherently interesting it's the answers that are interesting so the example you gave is a dream autobiographical or fiction. Actually, I would posit that somebody's answer to that could be very interesting. And actually, as a reader, you're invited to explore that. Yeah. I'd and be- so if some of those little points for, for internal exploration and thought fall flat, there'll be other ones that really hit it. Yeah. And I, I'm very aware of two things. One was... I'm quite a literal person, so reading a lot of these things, I immediately just mm. go, "Well, that doesn't make sense to me." So, so it's bollocks. Like, and I, I know that that's me and my interpretation. So, I'm I'm extremely hesitant to to say anything that's meant to be objective about this kind of stuff. Yeah. The main thing as well was that I very quickly, once I got through the frustration, I very quickly got to a point of, well, the point of this text and this work is not the same as comics that i'm used to no 100%. comics that i'm used to the intention is to tell a interesting story or narrative to just get you engrossed and hooked right yeah this felt a lot more and i think the i think um the author would agree with this uh let me just bring her name up again just so i linda barry linda barry i think would agree with this 
this is much more about being an expression of art yeah than than a intended piece for any like a, any intended specific narrative to interest or engross a reader this yes. is definitely closer to self-expression as a piece of work so yeah bearing that in mind i realize like my frustration with it is not like a an objective uh, analysis of it or anything or a uh, critique of it it's just my experience of what this work did for me yeah and i think i think it's interesting that you because i had a similar experience with it albeit my response to it was a little bit different like mm. i i very quickly clocked that those collage pieces were a disruption like mm. it was a disruptive element in an otherwise very powerful and grounded narrative the thing is i i'm that kind of level of stupid where i know i'm stupid in certain ways so for me reading this i'm going am i missing something like am i just not getting it like i didn't have that kind of uh, that confidence to be like oh it's i'm feeling disrupted and it's a disruption like you had yeah. i'm just going am i just too dumb for this kind of work like i'm I, again too literal like am i just too kind of rigid in my interpretation of art you i know? certainly wouldn't call that dumb um I dumb certainly... is a very simplistic yeah. way yeah sorry i cottoned on to one word that you used there and not the actual wider point because like like i do with this yeah. text well because that level of self-reflection is anything but dumb yes but, isn't it? Like... but there's that level the modern <laughs> i think there's a modern thing of like people being like i'm i'm, I'm dumb but i'm smart enough to know how dumb i am yes. which is like that kind of in between it's like a lot of us would rather be so dumb that we don't know how dumb we are but then you end up voting right-wing policy so hey <laughs> we got we brought it around to the tories got, motherfucker. Got him. <laughs> i think i mean i have the benefit of an english degree and a few years in a writing school um and so i'm used to reading kind of more avant-garde poetry um you know i read a lot of alan ginsburg and jack kerouac and people like that when i was a student whereas my own experience with ginsburg is i watched that film because it had daniel radcliffe and the guy who played dexter and i Hilly was darlings. Like, yeah and i was like i'll have a go at that there is a better um biopic of ginsburg i, I never know if he's ginsburg is or it the ginsburg. one with james franco yeah but scandal noted yeah, Scandal Noted. It's really good, though. Ah. And it includes a beautifully animated, dramatic reading of his be of his most kind of famous poem, Howl, into the narrative. Mm. And it's really cool, really interesting. I mean, that was probably James Franco's one for me, mm. <laughs> if that makes sense. Do you know, I had a, I had a similar kind of experience. I watched um, recently Death on the Nile, the Poirot film. Yeah. Riddled with plot, uh, plot holes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't make sense when you really think about it. And one of the most scandal noted casts of a film, <laughs> one being um, Archie Hammer, Hamner, Hammer, who, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, the scandal noted has something to do with him having to come out with a press release of some kind, basically assuring people that he's not actually a cannibal. So I'll leave it that. Like, yes, he had to say that. That guy. Yeah. But also features the more recent scandal noted of Russell Brand. But the funny thing is, for all the criticism, specifically of acting the Russ Rand's done just of his acting he was actually really good in death on the nile i was surprised by his subtle performance in it yeah i mean i think he's probably Again, scandal noted yeah, absolutely um but no i so i think that that element of it kind of rang true a little bit more evidently to me mm. but i definitely changed the way that i was reading the text like I didn't necessarily read every piece of text on the collage pages. I started to kind of skim through those pages, but then I felt like, 
am I meant to be doing this? Am I missing something? Yes. And what I started doing was just enjoying them as little pieces of art. Mm. And I read this on a bigger device than what I would normally read on. So I went from a phone to a tablet. After the after the second collage page, I went, I need a bigger screen for yeah. this. And so I was reading it on a tablet. So I had quite a big screen and I was just kind of zooming in and out of the art, just taking it in, letting it wash over me and then going back to the narrative. And I noticed that when I approached it like that, those collage pages became really enjoyable because I kind of picked from them what I wanted and left behind what I didn't. Um, and maybe that's not how it was intended to be read, but it's the way that I enjoyed it, so I think it's valid. I mean, it's more so than the way I read those pages, which again was just kind of skimming out of a kind of tired frustration after a while. But what happened was um, I then got more of the actual narrative pages, which were these yellow pages of uh, her drawing and writing her experience as a child growing up, it, her relationship with creativity and expression and art and stuff and that i that turned me around from being frustrated with the book as a whole to then going uh okay here's the good stuff yeah and then what i think i noticed was the narrative pages and the collage pages the ratio of them shifted so it became so it was quite collage heavy at the start and then the collage page became less and the narrative pages became more so i became like i would literally read the narrative page and then the next page would be a class page. Go, oh, you bastard! And then like <laughs> skip through them and like get to the next narrative page. Right. Okay. So you you were really sucked in by the kind of narrative that was happening, and then found the disruptions a bit too disruptive. Yeah. I, again, I was just like, I was enjoying that, and then you stopped it for something I don't enjoy. So, and again, like a disrupted narrative. I keep talking about this, and I'm going to give you a really good example of it uh, by Irvin Welsh. Uh, yeah, Train Spotting. Yeah. Mm. He wrote a novel called Filth. Yes, I've seen the film. Great. Yes. Um, James McAvoy. James McAvoy. Great James McAvoy. I mean, every performance by James McAvoy is a great performance. I love An him. Interesting side note for that film. Uh, one of the re I don't know if this is... This was a thing, just him being in the film. There was a part where his character... There's a few parts where his character throws up. And it turns out James McAvoy can throw up on command. Yes. So he has to eat something first, but he's all okay just regurgitating for film. So that book features a heavily disrupted narrative. And so what will happen is... You start reading it, and in the first few chapters, all of a sudden, there's still text behind it, but over the top of it are these huge, thick brackets and a bunch of zeros. Mm. And as you go through the book, these um, disruptions become more frequent, and you start to get text in them. And it's like weird text that doesn't make any sense. It becomes apparent that what you're seeing is the... Tapeworm? Yeah. Yeah. You're seeing his tapeworm's thoughts, and it's overlaid over the narrative. So you can see just spitting out on either side of this big like tapeworm shape that they've made almost with ASCII art. Mm. You've got, you know, there's stories still happening underneath it, but what you're actually seeing is his tapeworm. And so it's it's that kind of stuff. And and you know, this is it's a narrative tool, I think. And I think it's a way of eliciting a certain feeling from a reader. I'd say with the with that kind of comparison, I feel like with that the tapeworm excerpts were kind of leading to this reveal that added something to the original narrative. With reading the collage pages, I think my frustration was somewhat related to this feeling that I might be not just not getting something, but missing something that would be important later. Yeah. And again, that comes from, I think, quite my, my literal, like, what is the story? What are the events? What are the characters? Like, that kind of thinking. Yes. So, <laughs> and that's, and it, to be fair, a credit to the text, that kind of, revealed something not necessarily that i didn't know about myself but it kind of highlighted something that i don't think about often which is how i interpret 
texts and and stories and stuff. Yeah. Um. So it highlighted that. So an, an advantage to the college pages in that regard. I do want to stress that, like me using what I, what I do feel are kind of like maybe too harsh terms, like faux philosophical and, yeah. and and fortune cookie that kind of stuff. I, I'm just trying to kind of be honest, like that's just how I felt in the moment. Yeah, of course. I, I want to kind of remedy that by also saying the pages of the actual, like the the autobiographical pages of her childhood, some of those parts were extremely touching and oh. very relatable. And that was when I was like, oh no, this is good. Like that's when I kind of came back around. Yeah, fully. Like I think specifically the story of her talking about the Gorgon, the monster. Yeah. Love, that was probably my favorite part. Set favorite part uh just after the um the bit of the start about anxiety and cringe i think the pages about play i found really fascinating so there's this whole passage where she goes into the fact that play isn't necessarily fun and for children play can be incredibly serious particularly when they're not playing with another child they're playing alone and so they're creating this narrative mm. and i think one of the things one of the uh, one of the undercurrent themes of this is that children are all creative and then some children leave it behind and some don't and some people go on to have creative lives and some people don't go on to have creative lives i would say i think the i think that is a bit of a, a an, an assumption that all children are creative like all children are creative to extents but there's definitely far more some children are far more creative than others mm. like i feel like that might be an oversimplification but all children are creative in a way that all adults are not. Yeah, all children, every person was more creative as a child than than they are as an adult. And that's, that's even going for creative like professionals, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And she talks about the fact that as an adult, her creative life became two questions. Does this suck? Mm. And her creative life, even though she was a creative person who made art for a living... Um, her her creative life changed and it became less about play and exploration more about making something that was good and that was because it was validated in childhood for her creativity and so this kind of idea you know i mean i am a creative person i play music write starting to learn how to draw um you know i have a lot of creative outlets i build things i make things and when i meet people who aren't creative they don't make anything they don't draw they don't knit they don't paint, like they do none of those things. I always kind of go, what, what, what's going, what do you do? The with free time, what do you do with your time? And so this oh, yeah. idea that like people lose their creativity, it just really resonated with me. And I thought it was a really beautiful call to arms for everyone who read this book to just go and make something. Hmm. I kind of, I kind of have a similar thing with you on that. And it's not so much whether someone's creative or not, but just for me more vaguely or more generally, if someone's passionate about anything or not, like I don't, yeah. I don't mind if like, I don't think of anything of it. If someone's not creative in any way, like I do think creative doing creative stuff is beneficial to everyone. I do believe that, but I don't hold it against anyone if they're not creative anyway, but at least, at least be passionate about consuming something like if you're not making something at least have some kind of passion and interest in taking in something and sometimes you meet those people who don't have any passion in anything and i think that's that's even way more worse yeah. than uh if that's grammatically correct way more worse i mean but, we can go with it but it sounds like even worse to not have just like be excited to consume some art in any way but i think again you know this is a she goes into great detail about the fact that when she was in grade school, she copied things and she got really good at copying other people's art. And that for her was an entryway into creating. Um, it wasn't until she got to college where a professor made her do 10 paintings a week 
that she actually started creating. And even then, she was just painting one of her like boyfriend's photograph series that he'd done. Um, and so it, re- it does really show you the fact that actually being a consumer is an entry point. Like consuming art is really important to them making it. Um, a lot of writers say that reading is the only apprenticeship you get to become a writer. Yeah. And yep. looking at art and enjoying art is the only apprenticeship you get to becoming an artist, right? The best creative advice I ever saw in that vein was uh, if you want to, uh, you can apply this to anything, but specifically is if you want to be a good writer, the best thing you can do is read bad writing because you learn more from reading the bad stuff. Do you know who said that? Alan Moore. Was it Alan Moore? Uh, in his masterclass. The Alan Moore of the week. <laughs> we need to find a good name for that. Is it more, more moments? More, more. Because we're, we're doing more, more. Yeah, okay, yeah. So M-O-R-E, M-O-O-R-E. Yeah, more, more. <laughs> it's our more, more moment. But yeah, I just, I just, so I think I, I thought of this as an art piece and I enjoyed it the same way I enjoyed fine art, which was to take Oh, those- fancy Dan with a <laughs> joint fine art. But <laughs> I had know, to. We all, we all liked, I mean, I don't know about you, but I like to look at a nice painting sometimes and I like to walk around art galleries occasionally. Um, I've enjoyed it when I've done it, but I don't think I've ever sought it out. Oh, fuck. That's the working class police coming to <laughs> take Revoke away. your license. <laughs> I mean, you lost that. You lost that when you went to university, didn't you? I went to a polytechnic, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Financially, you were working class, but what, what were you consuming at the time? Literature. Exactly. <laughs> lots and lots of literature. Um, yeah. And so I, I, I enjoyed the more kind of the less narrative parts of this the same way I would enjoy fine art which was just to kind of let my mind go blank and take it in for a moment and enjoy it for what it was and then move on. But I definitely found myself like stopping for a moment to think about some of the questions that she was asking us. And there were tick boxes and answers and answer strips mm. for people reading the actual book to deface it and to give their answers to her questions and to really engage with it. Yeah. And again, you know, that's 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 a whole thing in art is art as an interaction. Um, and there's a bunch of gallery artists who have done interesting things with that, you know. I mean, to me, that came further away from art and became more about creative exercises, which, yeah. you know, I don't think is it's it's not a bad thing for a book that's like, here's some artistic expression and also here's some creative exercises to help you, which is why you bought the book potentially in the first place. Yeah. So I think it's fair enough that the exercises, they still done in the collage section and those parts were better for me because i was like i actually understand what's happening now Mm. like it's posing questions and it has collage pieces related to the questions and then you spaces to write your answers i mean the collage pieces were barely related to the questions they were just all beautiful pieces of art weren't they well you say that but there's parts about writing was it like remembering 10 dogs you've met in your life oh yeah 10 pictures of dogs yeah i suppose what part says remember 10 of your friend's mothers which sounds weird at the at, at the first like mentioned they see his mom. exactly <laughs> but the point of it was is you you write about the whatever memory you have of a friend's mum. you write in i think the reason why it's it's friend's mum is because it's inherently a remember a bit from your childhood yes because you meet more of your friend's mums when you are a child than when you are an adult it's weird meeting your parent your friend's parents as an adult yeah you're just like hello fellow adult who happened to <laughs> create my friend here <laughs> so weird isn't yeah. it but um but again that point it has a collage of 10 different like traditional women's dresses yeah so obviously that's meant to be like the her generation especially their mums were definitely more con- 
conservatively dressed. Yeah. So it's 10 of those dresses. But that's like her expression of, here's what I think of when I think of 10 of my friend's mothers. You know, mm. That makes sense. So yeah, there were collage parts that relate to that. And for me, I was like, oh, I understand what's happening now. So I'm enjoying this more than the more, what felt to me like random collage pieces, which I was just struggling to get yeah, to I've, interpret. I started to notice what was happening in the collage pieces have more relevance to the narrative as we went on and i think it's because we'd seen more of the narrative and at the start she was posing quite big open-ended questions Mm. and i think maybe that was just a way of kind of opening the reader up to what was going to come if anything i think my confusion of the big questions just kind of closed me off a little bit and that's just that's me and maybe that's that's an unintended reaction to this kind of work and again we when we had the conversation about doing this we knew it was left to field and for reference i was recommended this by a friend who is incredibly creative Mm. he like has an animation degree he is in a band he is an artist that is like how if i if i was if i had to describe him in one word like in vocational terms I'd be like, oh yeah, my buddy, he's an artist. And so, you know, this this was something that I knew was going to elicit certain responses from both of us. Mm. Whereas for me, best way to describe myself, I've just realized is, you know, the old, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear, it doesn't make sound. I'm the kind of guy who hears that and goes, well, yeah, because the, the laws of physics are still in play. So just because no one's there to hear it, the sound wave is still created. Like that's where I'm coming from. Yes. Which again is literal to a fault, I realize. So literal to a fault that it doesn't take into account all of the science. Well, I mean <sighs> what is the literal definition of a sound? It's sound waves. No. I mean that's how I interpret it's it. It's a sound wave hitting your eardrum and creating an impulse in your mind to make a sound. A sound is something that have sound waves are a physical um a, a, they're a physical anom- anomaly that happens when air is pushed together in a certain way. Okay. So, a sound is what happens when that air resonates with your eardrum. So right. if, a, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around to hear it, does it make a sound? I would argue on a purely scientific basis that it creates sound waves undoubtedly because that's how the laws of physics work. But if, for it to make a sound, there needs to be somebody there to perceive it. Yeah. That's... And we know that having someone or something there to perceive a physical anomaly affects the event itself. So that you're, getting in, that you're getting into some very dodgy quantum physics. That is, that, <laughs> so that is a, a bite size of some <laughs> quantum physics that has been shared and uh, regurgitated into almost a meme format mm. where it's passed off as like definitive science. Because I've seen that exact same stuff. I understand. And then when I've seen people actually explain, it's like, you're not quite understanding it. In the same way that, you know, Schrodinger's cat Oh, well, I know about Schrodinger's cat. So there's a misinterpretation with that. So for anyone who doesn't know, Schrodinger's cat is, it's the, what you'll commonly hear of it is it's someone demonstrating quantum physics, again, by observation affecting the result of, a, of an experiment or just an action in, in physics, quantum physics specifically. So in Schrodinger's cat, there's a cat in a box with a degrading box of poison or radiation, radioactive substance, I think it was the original one. And basically at a certain point in time, well, the undetermined amount of time the radiate the box will degrade and the radiation will kill the cat but you don't know when it's going to happen so the idea being that in this box until you actually open the box the two states of the cat being both alive and dead exist simultaneously because you've not observed which it is so they have to both happen at the same time but did you know that was a critique exactly yeah. that was the point i was getting that so that but we are i think we've 
both heard that as the misinterpretation of an explanation of quantum physics, when actually Schrodinger created that in the first place to be like, that's not how it works. The cat is either alive or dead. It doesn't matter if you open the box or not. So his critique was like, oh, if you don't open the box, I guess it's alive and dead at the same time. And a lot of dumb people were like, yeah, I suppose that's how quantum physics. So he's like, no, no, that's not what I mean. <laughs> like, you can't, it can't be alive and dead. So. Yeah, no, it was the great tragedy of his life that the most, the only piece of his work that was as far reaching as it was, was a deep misunderstanding of the point he was trying to make. Exactly. But my point still stands that a tree falling in the forest doesn't make a sound until there's somebody there to observe it because a sound is a phenomenon that happens inside your brain. Yeah, but then at that point, you are getting into debating semantics where it's like, what is the sound? And that's and- what that question is about. It's 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 an opportunity to debate debate semantics, isn't it? Yeah, but again, that's a misinterpretation <laughs> as well because a lot of people sort of view that as a very philosophical thing of like, yeah. does things do things happen if you don't observe them, kind of thing, which obviously is not the case. Yeah, but again, I think that's that's what's interesting about a philosophical question is that the answer itself isn't always what's interesting about it. It's the avenues that answering that question takes you down and the exploration you go through in doing it. And I sound really pretentious right now because I'm talking about fucking philosophy, which is deeply pretentious. Yes. And I think that that unfortunately was one of my takeaways with those pages specifically mm. was I felt like it was pretentious for the sake of it's being pretentious. Yeah. But again, just those parts of the book and or to the point where I almost was kind of going to give this a bad rating even though we don't do <laughs> ratings but you know what i mean yeah and then i got to the narrative page and i was like oh no here here it is here is what i here's, here's what i'm looking it. for from it yeah and I, and I and i suppose you know i would be really interested to see how this looked if you just put, plucked the narrative out of it mm. and i don't know if it would be too intense because the way that she goes into the th- the events of her childhood the raw events of her childhood is so powerful yeah so powerful and it's really you know you are you are seeing somebody's interior life laid out in front of you here and so actually having points of reflection and having points where that narrative is disrupted and you're invited to just consider some of the questions that she was probably working through herself when she wrote this Mm. i think it's a really nice way of packaging that narrative in a way that makes it readable (laughs) see for me i think i would i'm on the other side here i think i would prefer a a, a version of the text which is just the narrative like i think i'd find that more of an interesting condensed read yeah and i think to be fair like i see your point about mixing up a bit because it gets so deep and you know so strikingly you know real and darker points but even that even within the narrative pages there is still a slow build up to that so like like you said earlier there's a bit she's talking about children's relationship to play and stuff like that and there's always there's always a tinge of the of the darker reality where she's talking about her relationship dissolving with uh with creativity because of how other people interpret it and stuff so there's always that tinge and i think that that leads really nicely into the when it gets even more serious with like hiding these stolen paper pages of paper from her mother because because yeah. she thinks she's going to be punished for express just expressing herself and and that kind of thing. So I, I think those narrative pages by themselves would make a compelling shorter text, a short story. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And I can see that. Um, I mean, I enjoyed it as a package. I mean, overall, I, I enjoyed it overall because of how good the narrative pages were. They were excellent, weren't yeah. they? And I think something that we haven't really talked about here is how good the lettering was. 
So the lettering early on, I think I I didn't even make a note of it, but I think I remember early on the font constantly changes or the writing style constantly changes. Yeah. So but, she goes between cursive and print. And then as it goes on, it becomes more of a uniformed neither cursive nor print, just kind of like handwriting. Yes, but you you probably wouldn't have recognized this because this is a thing that I learned from somebody who does typesetting professionally. Mm. The type of print she's using is not quite nailed on because it's her, I, I assume it's her handwriting, but it's really similar to an architect's script. Right. So architects, you, architects and draftsmen used to have a handwriting style that was developed so that each letter fit neatly into a square of a grid of squared paper and was readable at a distance so that you could take a step back from a plan to look at it as a whole and still read their annotations and so it's almost like a cartoonist annotation style and so we're watching her develop her handwriting style into this infinitely readable really pleasing script that is kind of both unique but also rooted in something quite pragmatic. And I just thought that was really interesting. And it was a really lovely way of charting her progression as a cartoonist. Hmm. See, things like that. I really appreciate things like that because they are creative ways of adding to the narrative uh, text. Like it's, 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 it's like things we've done before where art and context of the story go hand in hand and yeah. complement each other. It Form feels and function. Like, yes, and it feels exactly like that. But again, that's one part of a larger thing where there was just a lot of stuff I didn't get. So. Yeah, yeah, totally. And like, this is one of those things where not everyone's going to get it. Yeah, <laughs> like I, not everyone's going to vibe with it. And 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 I and I think that's kind of cool. And I think your perspective is really interesting. This is because, like the reverse of like you not getting superheroes. <laughs> it's like the reverse of that. Yeah, but I don't know that. I don't know that it's about you not getting it. And I think that's where the complexity comes in for me. And I think that's where it becomes really interesting. It's not that you didn't get it, it's that it had a certain effect on you. Right. It's not that you weren't getting it, was it? Because you were reading this stuff and going, okay, that makes sense. Like, I have thoughts about this. It's not like you were just reading it and going, oh, duh. You know what I mean? Like, Well, if I was scared that I was that, that was going to be my thing with the collage pages. And I think when something is quite obviously aiming at profundity, there is a... Uh, there, there is a natural assumption that it is profound, and if you're not seeing the profundity, then you are at fault. Mm. But I think what was actually happening there is you were seeing these kind of statements that were intended to be thought-provoking or profound, and actually they just weren't landing for you. I think I literally was like half and half, because I, like, I didn't know whether they were actually profound, and I wasn't getting them, or they were, again, like I, the term is like faux-philosophical, and I wasn't meant to get them like i didn't know which it was and i don't think there's a right answer like i don't think there's a correct way of viewing it and i think philosophy is an interesting school of thought because it's inherently introspective philosophy mm. and philosophy is a way of thinking that it was invented and developed to make you think about thought and to give philosophy majors a job after college well and this is it isn't it and you've something you've hit on really succinctly there is that you don't learn philosophy until you're a bit older. The school curriculum has maths and science and literature and geography on it. You don't get an opportunity to study philosophy in the UK until you're 16. There's no philosophy GCSE. Philosophy A-levels. Because mm. um, your mind's just not probably formed enough or experienced enough to, to delve into those things. Yeah, absolutely. And so 
I've I, I've studied a little bit of philosophy. Put it this way, a child that understood philosophy, I would be very scared for like, what has happened to you to make you grow up so quickly? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, how are you this introspective? Mm. How are you this reflective? And so like, all philosophy kind of reads like faux philosophy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and it's a slow burn. And I think sometimes with a big philosophical statement like that, or a big philosophical question, um, actually, it's six months later when you go, I wonder, you know, are my dreams autobiographical or are they fiction? Like, you know, what what is my brain actually working through there? And how does my brain work? And that, like, how does my brain work? And what is happening to me when I'm sleeping is actually an objectively quite interesting question. But you need the kind of faux philosophical question of, are my dreams fiction or autobiography to get you to that place where you're thinking about that? But then for me, I read a lot of lines like that. And again, maybe I'm just not allowing myself to to think in kind of directionless ways where you can explore ideas like that. But I read things like that, like, again, like I said earlier, like a fortune cookie, like uh, uh, today is yesterday's tomorrow or something like that. We're like, it sounds profound, but it's not. Yeah. And I suppose... I mean, there's nothing worse than somebody trying to be profound. <laughs> exactly. When you're and, trying to be profound for the sake of profoundness. Yeah. Uh, profundity. Um, sorry. Pro- profanity? <laughs> I couldn't help How myself. Dare. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't like to be that person, but I am that Do, person. Don't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's one of my chief things that I don't like about myself. Um, there was a page. There was one of those pages that mm. talked about the beauty of a directionless mind. And talked about the beauty of a mind that's just at rest and is just thinking and exploring. And I don't like to get too technophobic, but I think that's something that... <laughs> really? I think, well, yeah, I know, right? But I think that's something that in the age of stimulation that we're currently in happens to us less and less often because there's there's less time when we are not stimulated by something bright and flashy. I do agree with you there. I do find one of my the big things in terms of assessing my kind of mental health is a lot of like how much time do i spend consuming stuff versus just thinking freely one thing i noticed uh that's kind of directly related to that is i would notice that when i would go to sleep at the end of the day i would suddenly be my mind would be filled with thoughts yeah and i realized it was because i had no part during the day for that to happen so i was always watching something or mm. if i was working i was listening to a podcast yeah. or you know i was always taking in something even when i was just like like cooking or going around or cleaning or whatever always listen to a podcast or yeah. listen to uh, music or whatever so not having that time for your mind to wander it does build up and then mm. i i don't know if anyone else has this but when i then head hits the pillow and everything's silent then your mind's like right so we've got all these thoughts that we were going to go through earlier i've saved them all up now and that's that can lead to difficulty sleeping so i agree with you there i've been really lucky that i've had a series of jobs that have just had that built into my day so i used to um run a library and it was a library that was shut for like three hours of the day but i still had to be there and i wasn't allowed a phone for reasons in the library and so i was playing tetris Um, for very important legal reasons, yes. I'm going to reiterate, I never took a phone into that library. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I would just sit and stare at the wall for a bit and it was really lovely. And now I have a job where I have to drive quite a lot. Mm. And so often I'll just turn the radio off and I will just drive and I'll be on a long drive and I'll just be thinking. And I have that built into my day and it's really lovely. I would say for anyone who might be experiencing a similar thing, listening, the best thing if you don't have that built in is just go for a walk. Just yeah. like make some time out of your day. Walking especially, as if you're doing something, you obviously 
sitting and staring at a wall is you, your body's naturally going to be like, we're not doing anything, let's do something. Like, at least mine is especially. But if at least, for like, for me, especially if you walk, if you're walking somewhere, it's that thing where you're occupying your body, so then your mind is free to wander. There's a, there was a thing in Layer Cake, wasn't there, by the guy who, like, disassembled his gun and cleaned it? Yeah. It was like, you keep the hands busy, and then the mind can wander, and that's healthy. Do you know about Wu-Wei states? I assume that's basically that why it's a flow state. Yeah. So in Chinese Buddhism, they have a word for it called Wu Wei, which is basically a flow state that you get into doing a mechanical meditative thing. Mm. Um, in Hindu philosophy, they have Phanal, which is the absolute desolation of self. And that's what happens when you go into that flow state where you kind of feel the ego melt away. And I don't mean like ego as in I'm the best. I mm. mean, ego in the rawest in, uh, psychological terms of your ego, your personality that exists within your brain. The id? Is that another name for no, it? No, there's the id, the alter ego, and the ego. The ego is the bit of you that's you, basically. Right. Um, the id is kind of your subconscious thoughts. Okay, fair we, enough. We don't like to explore him too much. He's an asshole. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, no, totally. Like Walking is a great way of kind of getting into that flow state and letting your mind wander. You heard the, the lovely story about William Wordsworth? No. So do you, you'll know who William Wordsworth is, obviously. No. Victorian poet. Okay. Um, and he used he lived in the Lake District, and he used to walk in the Lake District a lot. Beautiful area to walk in. Beautiful area to walk in, right? Mm. And there was a day when he got to his publisher's house. He was going to see his publisher, and he got to his publisher's house, and he walked in and went pen, paper, and he sat down and wrote an entire poem all in one go. And it's because the rhythmic falling of his feet in this quiet woodland had given him a rhythm to which he started to compose poetry. And so it's like when, you know, when, when you become a little bit more focused on your internal narrative and the internal, you know, you, you're kind of actually just focused on the inside a little bit. Interesting things happen and it's where a lot of really beautiful experiences happen. Mm. And I think people are really disconnected with their own brains these days. And maybe people always have been. And, and and I I know you know I mean um I think it was I don't I think it might have been Herodotus who complained <laughs> that um, <laughs> the invention of paper and like basically there was a Greek philosopher who argued that paper and ink becoming affordable meant that people would get stupid because they wouldn't remember all of their lessons anymore they'd write them down. And then when newspapers came about and then radio and then TV and then the internet and then TikTok, mm. there's always somebody saying, it's going to make us stupid. And it kind of hasn't yet. <laughs> I mean, there is trends, but I don't know if that's directly related. <laughs> no, I mean, as a general, you know, if you were going to put a fucking bell curve on a graph, people have been getting smarter over the past few thousand years. Like we have been. It's just a fact. True. But then have you ever seen the film Idiocracy? I have. The opening of that kind of lives rent free in my mind. Mm. Like, because it makes sense. It might not be true, yeah, yeah. but it, it makes sense. I watched that film as a student and it was very affecting. <laughs> For anyone who hasn't seen it, Idiocracy is a Mike Judge uh, wrote and directed film. Uh, he created Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill. And the film basically is a guy in the military or something. He gets frozen and um, wakes up in the future. But the problem is everyone in the future is stupid because it does this little bit at the beginning of the film where it shows two uh, examples of people having children. One was a 
traditionally intelligent couple who were always like, oh, it's not the right time now for us to have kids. We're going to wait till we're a bit more financially stable. Then a bit later, they're like, oh, the economy's gone a bit bad, so we're going to push a little more. And then the third thing is like, one of them has died. And the other one's like, well, I'm back on the dating scene, so hopefully I'll have kids soon. And then they kind of inter interweave that with a, uh, for lack of a better term, redneck guy. White trash family. White trash redneck who is having like five kids with his wife. And then he has... <laughs> Five kids with another woman, yeah, and yeah. then they the women fight each other while his twenty children are running around a trailer park. Yeah, so extreme examples yeah. of what could be a real life trend, <laughs> where yeah, yeah, yeah. basically everyone gets stupid in the future because of that, so. and they get to the point where, and this guy gets up to the future, and he's the most average man in the world, isn't he? And there's a point where he kind of goes we should probably stop watering our livestock with Gatorade and use water and like fix his international agricultural crisis. Basically, he wakes up to be the most intelligent man in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And if you spoil this for the ending, but I think it's funny, in the end, they make him president. Yeah. And it's, he's like, either he has kids with a woman who acts, who acts, not accidentally, who volunteers and gets froze as well. And they're like, they have three children. Those children are the, um, three most intelligent children ever born like or born in recent history and then a guy he makes friends with played by Dak Shepard who plays it dumb he's really so well great he's like and he had 20 children and they were the dumbest children <laughs> that have ever been born but um, yeah worth watching kind of plays into what we're talking about have you heard about Dak Shepard's podcast I've heard it's good it's meant to be really excellent um and he he did a whole episode where he talked about a relapse he had during the pandemic and it's like fuck that is some vulnerable shit my g like, I've been listening to Pete Holmes' podcast recently, and I think you th yeah. this topic. Oh, he's a very spiritual, philosophical person. Still very funny, like he's a comedian, but it, he talks on those subjects a lot. He has a podcast called "You Made It Weird," and he kind of gets on those topics a lot with with guests. Um, but if you're into what we've talked about for the past hour, like you'll enjoy that podcast. And especially, you can just go through and see what guests you recognize. Go, oh, I like that person. Like I've got. Uh, an episode to this do uh, where he spoke to Jason Siegel. So uh, like, Jason I, Siegel's definitely going to get into it. I fucking love Jason Siegel. But like, what are some of his questions? He just literally goes into like, yeah, because the ego and the id and like that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I'm learning a lot from listening to yeah. this guy. And then I saw his stand-up special recently on Netflix, and one of his bits is like he does a whole philosophical routine for a bit. Yeah. And then immediately afterwards, he know he knows he's got a juxtapose with the next joke. Yeah. So the next joke is. Do you ever go to the toilet and you need to shit so hard that you shit before you piss? And it's like, <laughs> and everyone we've just come from like highbrow <laughs> philosophy, and then, and he's like, "You're welcome for that." Like that brought us down. I like, mean, the ridiculous and the sublime is a theme that I love. Exactly. Um, yeah, those are some of the things that we've been listening to. I think we should kind of wrap up the comics. I think we've kind of touched on as well, much as we can. I mean, I think what's interesting here is that by the very nature of it, it's. It's her musings on creativity and it's her kind of recounting of her creative life. And so it's quite natural that actually this would be quite a tangenty episode. Yes. Because the narrative is there and I would highly recommend anyone read the book, even if just for the narrative the way that you read it. But actually what's fascinating about it is that it's given us a way into really fun chat. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, because I had this prepared as well, but I was going to ask you first, what what kind of person or who, who do you think would be the best person to recommend this to? like type of thought or creative whatever anybody who is trying to create something anybody who's trying to make something for the pure joy of making it yeah that specific caveat i think is important yeah because there's a lot of creatives who are like myself are like 
I'm going to make X so that Y happens. It's not just for the love of making X. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we don't get here from Linda, Barry, I'm not going to call her Linda, I don't know her. Just going to call her Barry. (laughs) (laughs) Is the fact that she never really talks about monetizing her art. Yeah. Clearly that happened for her. In some way, yes, definitely. She is a she is a university professor and a working artist and an Eisner Award. Specifically, winner. a published artist. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. She is a published cartoonist. She had a run of cartoons that went for many years. She's published three or four illustrated novels, I think her publishers call them. She's published this. This she... is definitely close to an illustrated novel than, mm. than anything else we've done. Yeah, and I think something that I've been talking about doing for a while, some graphic autobiographies, and I think this kind of by accident became that and i think it's been really fun and really interesting i would say personally i think it's similar to you i would recommend it to people who are thinking a lot about the act of creativity and things like that but for me as well i would make the specific recommendation of if you like if you want a really dense creative style autobiography told through illustrated novel or graphic novel whatever you want to call it you should read this but you might want to skip the collage pages like i did or skim through them a little quicker definitely really interested to read some of her graphic novels so she wrote a semi-autobiographical graphic novel uh, the area that she grew up in she grew up i think on a trailer park um but she grew up in a sort of less affluent area that was really ethnically diverse way back when in the kind of mid to late 20th century and so she wrote a book about having um mixed race friendships as a child and kind of you know like 1960s 1970s america and I think that would be fucking interesting. Mm. Um, and just based on how good the narrative sections were and how solidly she wrote a story, I'd be really intrigued to see something that was a bit more grounded and a bit less explorative yeah. from this same writer. I would like to see, and I hope this comparison kind of comes across the right way, I would like to see her version of, of like, Mouse. Like, yeah. her... her autobiographical thing that's told in a more coherent narrative but still you know take some creative you know roots and techniques and stuff see what she does in that regard i mean i'd love to see her batman run <laughs> i mean i tell you what she'd definitely get one of the you could give her one of the the lesser known like heroes and well, just give him one of those she she got an arts fellowship she is the I'm going to I'm going to quickly pull it up and cuz it, it it deserves talking about. I think she'd be great on a kind of run of like Sandman or something like that. Yeah. Well, basically she's been given a fellowship um and been really highly rewarded for the women in comics stuff. Yeah, I um saw that on her Wikipedia. Yeah. Um it was uh, Comics Alliance, who I have never heard before, so I'll look into who they are apparently listed her as one of 12 women cartoonists deserving of lifetime achievement recognition. Yeah. And so I think, you know, seeing something like this that is kind of almost a think piece, I suppose. I mean, it made me think. Yeah, it certainly did, right? Um, I would be super intrigued to see what she would do if someone was like, do you want to miss Marvel run? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, she'd knock it out of the park, man. It would be amazing. I mean, let's, I mean, I will, like, let's give her the benefit of the doubt of, like, we're, you're asking her to do something that she would never do. That, well, not even that, but <laughs> it has requirements that are not typically of her work. Yeah. Like, you're not going to be like, right, so you need to set up a bad guy, an antagonist. We've got these ones you can use here, or you can make your own, and you've got to cl- foreshadow them here, and then you've got to have them revealed here, and then big fight here, and what is the, char- what is the main character lure? What's their character arc? I think, yeah, it's like being like, um, 
I'm trying to think of like any famous. It's like Charles Dickinson. Like, right? Can you do like a meta Batman run? Like, it's. <laughs> you know, there was that guy who did a bunch of reimaginings of Victorian novels. So he did Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. Yep. Imagine like Great Expectations and The Joker. Mm, like, yeah. it's a it's it's a Charles Dickens novel, but with Batman in it. I it would. It would I'd be read it. Dude, Great Expectations is a slog. It's so long. Well, funny you should say that. I've got something that I was going to kind of add as like an add-on to the end of this episode. Yeah, cool. Just after we've talked about the comic, because just in case we had a little extra time, we've got a bit of extra time. I saw a story that I thought this would be great to bring up on the podcast. Yeah. Mainly because it's not only it's a story or anecdote, it's a literature-based story anecdote. So we don't get many of those. I'm here for it. So I saw this Reddit post. (laughs) <laughs> and it's a story from the guardian there's okay. there post on reddit as it is called it never ends the book club that spent 28 years reading finnegan's wake do you know what finnegan's wake is no so finnegan's wake is a novel by james joyce oh god yeah no yeah okay yeah so for anyone who doesn't know james joyce irish novelist wrote some famous stuff uh most Nobody Ulysses. He wrote Ulysses. He also wrote The Dubliners and The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Yeah. So right before he died, he finished uh, Finnegan's Wake, which uh, took him several years, so much so that he, I think he had a four-year writer's block. <laughs> so I think I, I did have it here. I'll just see if I can find how long. Do you know long... James Joyce went blind and mad towards the end of his life? I mean, based on what I've heard about this book... That's not surprising. <laughs> like uh, you could barely see towards the end. Yeah. So Finnegan's Wake, it's a known, uh, the, the book is, a novel is known for its experimental style and its reputation as one of the most difficult works of fiction in the Western canon. Uh, written over a period of 17 years and published in 1939, with also, again, this massive writer's block in the middle yeah. of it. Um, and what's interesting about it is it's so difficult to read, apparently, because it's written largely in idiosyncratic language which blends standard english with neo neologisms logism neologisms portmanteau words irish mannerisms and puns in multiple languages yeah yeah, yeah. so it's it's really dense in fairness i've read ulysses well ulysses apparently is child's play compared to finnegan's wake apparently ulysses is a slog yeah um ulysses but yeah i mean james joyce was a deeply well-read and intelligent man Hmm. so it makes sense that when he went a bit mad it was mad in a like very well-read way if that makes Hmm. sense so this book club in uh la uh started in 95 and started on finnegan's wake and they only just finished it this october so like just recently apparently same the, members uh, yeah like group like ingoing like some coming in some coming out like a core group i think who organized it but a lot of people would come in and out of it one guy literally took a decade off and then came back after retirement he was like i should get back to that group and apparently they'd only got like five chapters while he'd been away for 10 years <laughs> so what especially made me like draw to it was reading like some of the excerpts from this story because they interviewed the group right yeah, they're like yeah. you've just finished Finnegan's Wake like what's how do you feel about did it did you like it well <laughs> so one guy the guy who organized it Jerry uh Fialka or Fialka I have no idea if I pronounced yeah. correctly yeah. St- who started the group in his early 40s and is now 70 said I don't want to lie it wasn't like I saw God like I said of reaching the book's end it wasn't a big deal 
Like, it's like, meh. He spent 30 years reading a book, and his one review is, it wasn't a big deal. I didn't see the face of God. It's like, you could say that about a lot of things. Yeah. Um, But there's other excerpts which are good. Um, So one especially I thought was good was, so I'll ask you this. What do you think? They've they've got to the end of the book. What do you think they're they're doing now they've finished the book? So you think reading another book? Is that your thing? Yeah. Specifically Twilight. Okay. The answer is they're starting it again. (laughs) (laughs) They're starting it again. They could at least read the Dubliners in between. Well, so there's a reason there's a reason they're starting it again. And it's because the end of the book, the end of the novel, it ends mid-sentence yeah. and begins again at the start. Oh, so the sentence off. ends and begins again at the yeah, start of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently the point of the book and the point of Joyce's original writing of it was you have to read it several times. It takes <laughs> years to read and you also are meant to read it multiple times to truly understand it. So it takes years to read, I suppose, because you have to spend so much time researching everything, right? Well, if you want to get every single reference, then yeah, you have to... The guy said he had like 10 tabs of Wikipedia open during these groups just to try and be like, okay, this means this. But you had to constantly yeah. search things. There's uh, puns and double meanings in like eight different... At least eight different <laughs> languages. Like, it's so dense. I love puns that operate over two languages. That makes me so happy. I think if you read this, you would hate them. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's just so many, apparently. Because there, there's there's a joke that's like, why do French people eat one-egg omelettes? Why? In France, one egg is enough. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, a, it's silly, a pun. silly puns that operate over two languages make mm. me really happy. So, as of November, which is the month we are recording this episode, they are restarting the book again. So, I think maybe they took a month off. And the guy who organized it, this Jerry Falca, said, uh, there is no next book. We are, we're only reading one book forever. I would love to have a conversation with that guy because that's objectively really weird. I mean, there's a group of them, so they're all like <laughs> taking part in it. But well, I just got, thought it was amazing. We've got 27 years to fly over and hit the group. You <laughs> know? We'll do one episode on... Uh, on um, God, Finnegan's Wake. We'll do a one episode. Ryan. One hundred percent. That'll be for that'll be for the paywall Patreon. We should do one single podcast episode. I wonder if there's a comic book adaptation of it. <laughs> it's it's longer than Invincible. It's, yeah. it's longer than One Piece. It ha- it'd have to be. <laughs> Someone actually have to come up with illustrations for the puns and portmanteaus. Oh my god. Oh. So do you know what portmanteau means? I know vaguely. I couldn't define it. It's like it's, irony. Like I know roughly what it is. It's Spanish for suitcase because it's two things strapped together. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, genuinely- that- oh, I thought that- I thought you were doing the pun thing again. No, genuinely, that's exactly what it is. A portamento is a, it's a Spanish word for a suitcase. Right. And it's because you zip Spanish a suitcase. Spanish for a suitcase up. is mul- mulata. Well, fuck me then. <laughs> so I'm learning Spanish right now. So, so somebody, somebody on my linguistics course at university in 2011 fucking lied to me. Yeah, I, I literally <laughs> am doing the sentence right now of like, yo quiero una maleta. I need a suit, or I want a suitcase. Yo necesito una maleta. I need a suitcase. So yeah, that's, that's really that. stuff. <laughs> Who's correcting who now? Yeah, I know, right? Fuck me. <laughs> shoe is a, how are the turntables? The table, the shoe is on the other table, which yes. is turned. Yes, which <laughs> I have turned by correcting it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We've got a bit more time left. We've got a little more time left. Uh, uh, Lucy Casey. I uh, 
I watched a horror film recently that might Great. be the, the best horror film of the year. You say that about every horror film this you bring one is, up. This one is really good. And not all. I criticize some of them. But this one is especially good. I highly recommend. It's uh, you've People have probably heard it before. It's an Australian horror film called Talk To Me. Okay. And it's really good. It's it's the takes the kind of old worn concept of like ghostly possession, but it recontextualizes it in a modern way, where basically the the plot of it is kids are using a embalmed severed hand to speak to and be possessed by ghosts from the from limbo. Right. Because it basically is similar to like an incredible high. So it's kind of an allegory for drugs. <laughs> of course, in Australia, of course, somebody in Australia has made a horror film about drugs because you know they're having a massive meth e- epidemic over there at the moment. Well, apparently, so this was co-written by two brothers, co-written and co-directed, and they they literally were they went on meth. No, they went on. So they went from YouTube to making this film. This cool. film, this made for like I think like sixty million or something. Oh, maybe, okay, probably so even less. But in like, film terms, way not cheap. A lot. And it's already gross like two hundred million or yeah. maybe three hundred. But they were apparently inspired by um, there was seeing uh, videos on social media of people basically having bad meth trips or drug trips. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that that the film starts kind of off, or early on in the film, you see videos of people in this possession. Um, it's also got a lot of social media allegories. Uh, the one criticism you could make of this film, I think, is it maybe it tackles too many metaphors and allegories. There's also grief and disconnection and loneliness. Maybe it doesn't happen when you're addicted to drugs. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but especially like the just all the little things, like the 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 makeup and effects for when they're possessed is like really like really distinctive. Like it's got its own thing, kind of like how Evil Dead had the very kind of like this is what the Deadites look like in Evil Dead. It was very specific to that. It was it felt very realistic in like how the kids kind of reacted to this thing, and it was just like already established. It, there wasn't kind of like a oh my god, there's a a hand and you can speak to and be possessed by the dead like oh my god what's going on? they're just immediately like right here's the concept let's go like it's, let's just hit the ground running and it gets into like this really tense like generally scary concepts in it uh there's gore but just the right amount where yeah. it, it does this really amazing cgi or practical effects mix and it does these really horrific gory scenes for like a second right so you only see it for a second long enough to for your brain to interpret what's going on but not long enough where you can see through like the cgi or the practical effects yeah so like when you like saw and things like that where you see it for too long you go well i can see the, the i can see the leg stump here. is fake or that kind of thing this one is like snapshot vivid gore and then you you it immediately cuts to something else and you're just kind of left reeling of like oh my god what did i just see like it's it's amazingly well done. It's so interesting because you know Australia has a thriving indie film industry. I mean, I do now. This is like the biggest thing to come out of them for for a long. You while. should watch Red Dog. Uh, the most I've seen, I think, is uh, was a Wolf Creek from like a couple. There's like like two decades yeah. ago almost. Red Dog is really stunning and really sad, but but like sad, lovely. Do you know what I mean? Um, like it makes you feel something. Yeah, like Australians have their own kind of vibe in cinema as well like australian cinema has its own vibe i think in a way that a lot of native cinematic cultures don't anymore i Um, mean every culture has its thing it's just what kind of breaks through the mainstream and what kind of gets more recognition like yeah like england we've always had uh what's his name there's like a guy ritchie guy ritchie's more the mainstream i'm talking about like you know the more working class level version did like i daniel that kind of stuff Um, oh yeah yeah, yeah. i can't remember his name but there's a specific guy that kind of 
goes to show what make the point I'm making. But a lot of great British directors end up in America. Like the bloke who directed Train Spotting, what's his name? Danny. Danny Boyle. Danny yeah. Boyle ended up in America, didn't he? Like he makes stuff in America now. I mean, I, he did for a bit. I think he he did kind of return a little bit when he did like uh, I think Slumdog Millionaire was uh like not you know it was obviously set in India. I think that was an American studio production still though. Possibly. Like but have you seen the film he made before Train Spotting? Maybe, what was it? He made a film about a bunch of flatmates who murder somebody starring Ewan McGregor, which is really excellent. I have not, but it sounds good. Yeah, I forget what it's called now, but it's really fucking good. But then Danny Boy came back to make Trainspotting 2, so... Yeah, T2 was great as well. I love they called it T2, like... (laughs) (laughs) Because apparently Terminator 2 never actually officially licensed T2. No. It was just a kind of common term for it, but... Then Train Spotting 2 was like, we can actually legally call it T2. We could just use this. But the book that T2 is based on is really excellent. Is that the one that's called, is it called Pornography? Yeah, it's called Porno. That's it, yeah. Porno's really great. Um, It's basically uh, Renton and Sick Boy start a brothel and make a porno. (laughs) They kind of had to adapt that for the second film, didn't they? They kind of had to like change up to... Porno didn't happen, like the actual events of porno didn't happen long enough after. Right. Like porno set like 10 years after train spotting and T2 happened like what 25 years after train spotting. So they all just looked a bit too old. Hmm. Um he he published a further sequel a few years ago called Dead Man's Trousers where you know Begbie the violent nutter. Hmm. He went to prison, fell in love with his art teacher in prison and has become like a completely serene artist. Like he's so calm and serene and like it's the first time that Renton has seen him since he stole out of money from him. So he tries to give him the money and Begbie's like, no, you're fine. You know, laissez-faire, these things happen. That's going to be Train Spying 3. Well, I don't, I don't know that they're going to come back for another one. Like, I, I don't think T2 did as well as it needed to. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think anyone was like, this is going to be a box office smash. I think they were just like, let's just make it for us kind of thing. I'm also not sure that T2 was the artistic masterpiece that Trainspotting was. Trainspotting is a masterpiece of a film. Well, it's because it was more of a direct adaptation of the book, whereas, as you said, porno was like, they had to adapt porno to fit this sequel to Trainspotting. But like that scene where Renton has been clean for a hot minute, and then he does that shot on the carpet floor and that Lou Reed song starts playing and he gets rushed to the hospital and they Narcan him. Like, that is both sad and chilling and beautiful. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's just such a great piece of cinema, isn't it? Yeah. And I think Danny Boyle, you know, he went on to do other great things, but I feel like a lot of artists in ways, they feel a lot like more raw in their early days and then they kind of refine when they get a bit more successful and I think that's a common thing, especially in film. Do you know the famous story about Noel Gallagher and Trainspotting? Didn't he he had a misconception about it or something? Yeah, so they they approached him to ask for some music for, to use some of his music in this new film called Trainspotting. Yeah, like, I know. What this. A film about fucking Trainspotters? It sounds shit. <laughs> Classic Noel Gallagher. And like there absolutely should have been a bit of Oasis in that film. Like it, it you know, it would have perfectly fit. It was the nineties. Like it needed to be there, and it just wasn't. I mean, just like a, just like listening to Oasis, it's as bad for you as heroin. <laughs> oh God, don't say that. <laughs> I do not like Oasis. <laughs> I really like Noel Gallagher's latest stuff. His High Flying Birds album is fantastic. The right stuff's a great song i'll take your word for it i haven't really <laughs> you're not gonna bother are you 
<laughs> I mean, if it's anything like Oasis, I'm probably not going to. Yeah, that makes sense. I think BDI sounds more like Oasis than Noel Gallagher stuff did. Most Oasis songs to me just sound like, we're the fucking Beatles. Like That's, <laughs> that's pretty much every Oasis song. You know that moment in the, the yeah, I think it's called Yesterday, the film where the Beatles didn't exist? Yeah. And he, he's frantic. Oasis like, don't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> in a universe without the Beatles, there's no Oasis anymore. I thought that was really funny. That was fun, such a great little moment. Fun little take on them, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. But I think that's us. Yeah, I think we've covered everything. A uh, little slightly shorter, but we're cut. We've done. We have a correction. Out. Oh, yes. Yes, we did. Well, you do. I did fuck up. I joined in, but just because I was supportive of you as a friend. Uh, well, cut, no, no <laughs> don't. No, that's not fair. I'm not, I, I'm not correcting anything. <laughs> in the Kamala Khan episode. Ms. Marvel. In the Ms. Marvel episode, I very incorrectly asserted that islam is the oldest of the sand religions where in fact it's the newest um and goes judaism christianity islam roughly yeah. yeah i mean like you know it's hard it's to, oversimplified it's ancient history like it's it's hard to, it's hard to get a i mean good some still it. argue about it today unfortunately absolutely but no i mean in uh cgp gray did a video about the the levels of error on the internet and there are like tech error things that are like technically correct but don't really hold you know hold water and there are things that are just like you've made a little blunder in the editing of something and you've like put the wrong flag on something or whatever and then he called oh, it mr beast and flags yeah. Oof, jesus <laughs> and he called it error factualis like the ugliest most charmless creature he describes it as which is just like you have made a factual error you were wrong on the internet and i was wrong on the internet and i'm sorry I mean, once I start making YouTube videos, I'm going to be wrong on the internet a lot, but it's I mean, going that's to, your brand, isn't but it? the only people who are going to catch me are comic book fans. So it's like, eh, yeah, like, I mean, being wrong around comic book fans is fun. Yeah, that's where the uh, actually that's where that spawns. Like, are so. you reading Batman? I love Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> what if Nick Fury's in this one? Like, <laughs> I'm seething. I do. Spider Man going to empty himself here? Oh, <laughs> latest short. Check out TikTok, YouTube Shorts. Um interestingly you mentioned about that i just recently watched the latest um tom scott video tom yeah. scott for anyone who doesn't know is a british youtuber who's been like original internet og been so going cool, the entire he? time he's soon retiring from his weekly videos really? so he's not stopping everything but he has for a long time over a decade easily been doing a weekly video every monday he's been doing a lot of yeah. other stuff as well but that's kind of been his core thing as it he's now at the end of this year stopping the weekly video that's crazy yeah. so what he did recently is he did a video where he addressed every factual error and mistake from the past 10 years was there quite a lot of not them? that i mean it's like a 20 minute video and he kind of talks about each one a little bit so For there's not that many i mean it's a 20 minute video we probably made you know two three minutes out of every point so we're talking about 10 errors in like what 520 videos give or take that yeah so fucking hell that's impressive isn't it but just i thought you would appreciate this especially like some of them a lot of them are like i said the wrong word here or i mm. said the wrong concept here or i got this wrong whatever one point he got the number wrong in an equation that he showed on the screen yeah but one of them i thought you especially would appreciate and one of them he put the comma the wrong place in the sentence, like in the script. Oh, so he wow. read it as with the comma in the wrong place. And literally it was like a few words yeah. further than it should have been or something a like comma that. comma completely changes the meaning of a sentence, man. Well, exactly. That's why he felt the need to bring it up. So yeah. I did really appreciate one thing. He One of the mistakes was someone he interviewed said the wrong thing. So he's, And in, in showing the old clip, he said, I'm not going to show 
the actual mistake said by the person I interviewed because I feel like that'd be harsh. This person was kind enough to be interviewed by me. I'm not going to then show their thing. We're like, look what they said was wrong. Yeah. So he's like, I'm just going to say, I interviewed a person. They said this, this is wrong. And he's like, but, and he's like, it's my fault because I left it in the edit. Like it's ultimately me who he, should have taken that out. He's one of those people on the internet. Like I feel like the brothers Green, John and Hank, CGP Grey, Tom Scott, and Ben Yancey Groshaw. Oh, yeah. Are just bastions of credibility on the internet. And solidarity with Croshaw uh, and the ex employees of The Escapist, which now yeah. start the second wind uh, after solidarity with their editor in chief. I can't remember his name, but he got fired for basically not reaching unattainable goals. So, you know, if. Because did you ever watch the big picture on The Escapist? No, I literally only watched Zero Punctuation so and, the, and Extra Punctuation. So the big picture was my favourite thing. And you would love it. It like does deep dives into comic book, nerd history. Really, really great. I don't know that he's necessarily a great human being. Um, I've heard some stuff about him, but I always love the big picture. Do the scandal noted? I don't know, because I don't know if there is a scandal. This is me coming off the top of my head. So if you are okay. that guy and you are listening um maybe you haven't done anything wrong <laughs> and you're a wonderful sorry. Being. yeah sorry i really love your work i really love the big picture um in fact the big picture was very much like part of what i had in the back of my head when we started this right so i'd be really intrigued to see if the big picture carried over as well because i used to love that when i was a student it depends if they own the ip to the thing or not well this is it isn't it because one of the things they're taking over is a thing called cold take which i've heard a lot of people say is very good one of the second best things after zero punctuation but the problem is yahtzee does not own the zero punctuation ip he yeah. created the show for the escapist and in making it for them they own the ip it was the big picture with movie bob right and he used to do escape to the movies for the escapist as well okay he did he did their main movie review channel and then he did the big picture which was like a grand deep dive into something nerd culture related every week mm. um and his takes on like comic book history are just so knowing like absolutely if you listen to this podcast hmm. you should go back and watch some old episodes of the big picture because you would love it someone um, who knows actually knows more about comics than we do specifically more than i do <laughs> yeah much older than us and a much more engaged comic book reader than i think either of us probably are yeah. um i'm catching up in my comics i uh read the two surprisingly last year the year of our law 2022 there were two great year riddler comics the year of our lord what the fuck are you on about? Again, it's so my significant. My brother in Christ. <laughs> you are. The, I can't remember. My brother in Christ. You have a scarab. That was it. But yeah, there were two great Riddler comics last year. So I managed to get through them finally. One of them written by Tom King. So naturally, I loved it. Um, that's going to be a bias I'm going to have to constantly address in the Comics and videos. The other one, far more interestingly, and definitely we might do it someday. Uh, it was a Riddler comic and it's a prequel to the Batman so it's yeah. the Riddler from the Batman and how he became the Riddler, but it's written by the actor Paul Dano who played the Riddler. Yeah, we so talked about this. Apparently, what happened is he on the set. So Matt Reeves was the director, and in speaking to Paul Dano, Paul Dano was like, "Yeah, I've I've written this whole backstory for the Riddler. It doesn't have to go in or anything. I just I'm I'm just telling you this is what I'm using as reference for playing this character." Yeah. And then Matt Reeves read through this backstory that Paul Dano wrote, and he was like. Mate, you could make this a comic or something. <laughs> so Matt Reeves contacted DC and he was like, can you let Paul Dano write his backstory <laughs> as a comic? And they were like, yeah, all right. Fuck it. And it's pretty good. It's pretty good. The only criticism I would say is it maybe goes a bit too much into like 
metaphorical surrealism to kind of show the state of mind of the Riddler. Oh, well, you know, I'd love that. Well, you might, exactly. Yeah. But the, the only reason I criticize it is because they achieve the same thing with the literal, like, depiction of what's happening. Like, yeah. through actual storytelling, through form and, you know, the actual, like, literal story. Who was the bloke who played Batman that then ended up being in Family Guy? Um, Adam West. My favorite episodes of the Adam West Batman were the Riddler ones. They were good. I mean, I, I didn't re- watch enough of them to kind of discern between them, apart from the one where Joker challenged him to a surfing competition. Dude, Adam West Batman is one of the greatest things to come out of comic book culture. I will die on this hill. Adam West Batman is sublime. They actually continued that story in a comic book. No shit. Literally, Adam West Batman comic book like continued the story afterwards. Did that happen? Yeah, yeah. That's really rad. They also did Batman '89, so like Keaton Batman, the Tim Burton one. They did. I like Tim Burton's Batman. They also did the Batman animated series. They continued that as a comic. That's so rad. I never knew they did that stuff. I mean, basically, they were cashing in as many IPs as they they owned they possibly could in comic form, but. You know, still apparently some good stuff came out of it. Yeah, but we've, I mean, whenever we do the, whenever we talk about Star Wars stuff, we always talk about how interesting it is that you've got this same IP that's happening across multiple platforms. And so, like, on some level, I think, yeah, it, you know, you can look at it as a soulless cash grab. But on another level, it's like, well, I like Adam West Batman. Why wouldn't I want a bit more of that kind of story, right? Yeah, I operate on the on the idea that anything can be good. So just because something is a tie-in of a franchise, it doesn't automatically mean it's just a soulless cash grab. It's just that if they make something like that and it's just uninspired and lackluster and just, you know, lack of thought gone into it, then it becomes a soulless cash grab. Yeah. You can still make a good thing. You can give a good artist and writer, like, hey do this that's a tie-in for whatever like one of the best one of my favorite superhero comics i've ever read is the injustice comic which was a tie-in to promote the video game the whole existence was we've got the video coming game we've got the video game coming out batman and superman need to fight we need a story for the here's the story for the video game can you write a backstory yeah and then they were like all right and i read it and i was like oh my god this is amazing i mean we both love turtle stuff and that was a soulless way of marketing bandai toys wasn't it like it's not yeah but it started as its own original thing didn't it like, yeah the original comic i i watched a video just today from matt with four t's we keep promoting him he's really good he's... Should, we, should we see if we can like you know get some money from him i mean look, he's already <laughs> he's already got like a million views on a video so I, I think he's well past us now matt with four t's will you promote our podcast please because we talk <laughs> about you all the time and ryan really likes we you. say you're really cool <laughs> You're but, so cool. Notice me, somebody. <laughs> God, if he does hear this. Um, <laughs> I'm tweeting it. But, baby. I'm tweeting this whole episode in. But the, yeah, he he did a thing and it was literally how it went from Turtles, like, like originally drawn to million dollars. It's one of the most successful franchises ever. Yeah. And it's one of the few that started without any studio. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, but, you know, original conception. Um, and it literally, the first drawings of the ninja turtles eastman and laird the craze they literally did it to one did one to make the other laugh and then the other one uh, did one back it's like here's my version and then they literally took the two versions this is all from matt with 40s video they took the two versions and then one wrote ninja turtles because that's what they'd drawn yeah. and then the other added teenage mutant just literally to pop each other just to make each just other to make laugh. It f- oh that's so cool and it's of when you look at the list of all the big franchises and how they came from big publishers at big studios that's one of the few that was like 
literally started by two guys living together who just loved comics and just made something to make and each just other love drawing yeah yeah that's so rad all right i think we should we should we call should it definitely in, uh, wrap yeah. up we've just been chatting it's for been a huge tangent one i'll put time code in the description so people can jump around to us yeah. talking about whatever. i mean it's kind of fun just to you know be because like we have such a structured podcast where we have a really i i would hesitate to say structured well it is quite structured like we have a very specific thing and we talk about a comic book a week and like a lot of the two guys podcasts i listen to they both bring a set of notes they don't talk about what they're going to talk about beforehand and they go in and it is just a bit more like what the last half hour has been right sometimes that's fun sometimes yeah. that's kind of cool we're just guy like two guys shooting the breeze right yeah but let's, let's let's be clear it's not like that's a rare thing for us well yeah this is true Tan- tangents do happen this just one has a bit more than most other episodes so thank you for listening you want to send us an email comicliterate at gmail.com at some point soon the correction you said earlier was actually a write-in it was yeah no it was a write-in and the person who wrote it in, wrote it into us and said, when you mention it, will you say I'm your historical advisor? So we had a write-in from the person that I'm now going to be calling our historical advisor. The historical advisor of the podcast. Yeah. And so, I mean, he, he's quite vocal. <laughs> I mean, he reaches out quite often. And so maybe we'll hear more from our historical advisor. We'll, we'll like quote him every once in a while, but this is going to incentivize him to like correct us more. So I'm not, I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> well, may, may, maybe I should just like every once in a while, just send him an episode a bit early. Um, correct it for us in advance of us releasing. And then he can give us like a one sentence review of it that goes at the top of the podcast. <laughs> historical, the, the historical advisor to the podcast says this is cool. Like <laughs> just something like that. Coming literate is rad. Yeah. My brother in Christ, no. A, a double plus. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Comicliterate at I've been making TikToks. Yep. They're fun, I think. Sometimes they're insightful, sometimes they're a meme. And both, <laughs> both are good for their own reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we continue to make shorts. And also for that, if anyone wants to send in any, what they think is like significant comic book art, whether yes. really good or more especially if it's hilariously bad i think that's kind of what you're looking for to make more content on yeah yeah if you if you want to send me some comic book panels just do it um because I'm, I'm here for it i'm up for it um but thank you for listening and have a wonderful evening i also notice we all say evening we record in the evening but people could be listening to any point of day have a wonderful time but your, of day. but your next evening may it be good yeah i don't care what your day was like yeah as long as your evening is wonderful because at the end of the day, you want the good bit right before you go to sleep. Yeah. That really sets you. It's it's like it's like at the end of the film, it wraps everything up, and then you you say, that was a good film. <laughs> so <Bye>. yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>